Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. And this morning, we are lucky to be joined by State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister. Good morning, Superintendent Hoffmeister. Oh, good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, we wanted to start our conversation off by a new program that has launched um, through the State Department, the Imagination, Dolly Parton, that's a critical part, Imagination Library. How did this initiative come to Oklahoma? You know, it came through legislation, actually, uh, that uh, we supported because we know this has been such a great program in other states. Uh, Literacy starts with um, moms, dads, grandparents, family reading to young infants and preparing them uh, for their first day uh, in school. And so uh, this initiative requires $5 million to implement across the entire state in all 77 counties. Uh, And what we saw with our federal relief funds was an opportunity to get that started sooner than when it might have ordinarily started in the uh, legislature with an appropriation. And uh, we put $2.5 million in federal pandemic relief funds into this initiative to jumpstart this important opportunity with high quality age appropriate books for kids that they get in the mail uh, every month at no cost to the family in a public-private partnership uh, for all kids that are birth through five years old. Yeah, my my two-year-old grandson, we he's signed up for that. And to know, you know, even though they, they already have their little library at home, to know that he's going to get to, how exciting for a child to go, I'm going to get a book in the mail. And we're going to get to read it together and I'm going to listen to my mom and dad read it to me and know that just the excitement about reading that it it promotes. Absolutely. And it has their name on it. It is their book. Um, And we know that there's also, uh, you know, sometimes people think that they can't be a part of it. There might be an income level uh, check. It's for all kids. Uh, We want to increase the reading uh, and literacy skills that start with the modeling of reading, print awareness, uh, phonemic awareness, all comes when a child has a book read to them. And this is a way to get that started uniformly all across the state. And how would someone sign up for it? Do they go to the website or? They do. They can enroll online at imaginationlibrary.com. And uh, they can take it from there. The it will basically t- you can check the availability feature uh, as we are um, working with those um, nonprofits and community support organizations. Because in order for this to work, it can't be strictly funded by the taxpayers. To have longevity of the program, um, the Dolly Parton Imagination Library understands that it needs to be a private-public partnership, which we know that is how great education works as well, uh, with a connection between um, teacher, classroom, and family in the home. And so with this, uh, a family would just enter their zip code and enroll uh, if the Imagination Library is available in their area. And if it's not yet, it will be coming, but families can complete a form to be notified when the program becomes available. 
Yeah, this last summer, um, the National Education Association honored Dolly Parton as the friend of education through her work with the Imagination Library. And to hear her story that it, it started because her dad couldn't read and teaching her dad to read. And it was just so motivating to hear. And I was just thrilled to see it. About the same time, Oklahoma came online with it. So I was excited. Exactly. Well, and you know, I was that kid who struggled to read. Dyslexia runs in my family. Had we had this program when I was young, um, I think that it would also have helped me. Um, but it also uh, is something that is uh, very common to have children with reading, learning disabilities and struggles. We have other children who are learning English uh, for the first time and um, families where this kind of tool and support uh, can make all the difference as we get our kids ready to learn um, for that first day of school. Well, and actually the way I think about it, parents are our children's first teachers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm with you, Catherine, my little grandbaby is eight months old and, um, not yet available in their area. But when she was born, I was looking to see if we could get her enrolled. <laughs> we wanted her to enjoy, uh, this and there's nothing that makes your heart more proud than to see a little infant, um, learning about books and even understanding, um, that that's a special time of bonding and uh, cuddling together. So at the last State Board of Education meeting, um, you all presented the budget for what you hoped um, the education budget would look like. What what kind of priorities did you have in there? Oh, yeah. So this is something we do every year. It's in statute. It has to be done before October 1, where an approved budget is then um, sent to the legislature so they can begin their work of uh, planning and prioritizing and having some um, as close to accurate information as possible. Some of that's not available by October 1, um, but we do the best we can. Um, so one of the things we prioritized in this year's budget was the um, pay raise increase that we know our teachers need in order for our state to be competitive and um, be top in the region. We're going to have to have a $5,000 pay raise for all teachers across the board. That would impact about 53,000 teachers um, or or those classified as teachers. And then um, it would include um, also a pay raise for, or the potential pay raise um, for our uh, support staff uh, that are hired through districts. Uh, The reason there's a distinction is because it's a line item that often um, we think of in the statutory definition of teacher that we are are proposing today. We know the count. We know exactly um, how long they've served and what that estimate would cost. And that's why it's packaged that way. But we want to see that in the funding formula. Um, to then either be able to add additional teachers uh, so that we can grow the team. But our support staff, we've asked for $66 million additional dollars for operational costs uh, that we know our schools need to be able to address when it comes to bus drivers, cafeteria workers, paraprofessionals, uh, those that are helping to support um, even the central office, making sure kids are um, in school. And we know chronic absenteeism is something that is tied to uh, academic outcomes. And that attendance secretary is critical in gathering information so that uh, the team can act and re-engage students who might be falling off uh, track for um, that momentum. 
Yeah. And so through the years, it's been so interesting to watch the each year that you propose a budget. And, and that's the responsibility of every agency is to propose a budget to the state legislature. And that each year that that budget has been physically sound and responsible. You're not like overreaching and you know, we need to reach for the stars sometimes, but it's, it, it is responsible, but there's, that was the media kind of hit on that, on the teacher pay raise, but there was a lot more in there yeah. as yes. well. Yeah, there was. And, um, and, you know, it, it is our job as, uh, and as state superintendent to propose that. So there are other things that we have to look at in increasing costs um, that uh, to keep pace with what is needed. Some of that has to do with um, inflation, um, but also uh, other priorities where, for example, um, we have uh, a desire to continue our school counselor core, um, it, you know, coming um, along right now through some of the federal relief dollars, but um, the schools that have uh, been recipients of that grant have indicated uh, the majority are going to maintain those positions even after the grant is over. Uh, it made such an impact. And we also know that we've got to support our kids that we know are behind in math or reading and um, having the people on the team to be able to assist with um, instructional materials um, to help um, children that are learning English, um, those children that have fallen behind um, in math, um, where we know that this is an area that our middle school math students um, have struggled, uh, for example, or in reading. Um, all of those supports that we're asking for are so that our children can succeed and have a well-rounded education. And, um, and basically, we have to keep great people on the team in our Oklahoma public schools. Our kids deserve to have a caring, committed adult, ready and trained and supported and well-resourced on day one. So I would be remiss to, you are actually also running for governor and public education is one of your key platforms. Why, why run for governor and why is education a piece of that platform? You know, it's, uh, it is part of having a robust economy. You have to have a healthy, educated workforce. Um, so when we think about the future, we have to be investing in our young people. We have to be investing in the people that will teach them. And um, then also understanding that the world outside the classroom impacts the world inside every schoolhouse. And so all of this fits together, works together, but our children need to have um, safe and healthy communities uh, in order to thrive and grow academically. And um, I do believe that education is a piece of kind of those three big areas that need to be in balance um, from those supports within schools, um, the high standards and expectations, but the support to achieve that uh, and meeting kids where they are. Um, and then when we think about overall the health of a community, the safety of communities, I am also thinking about access to quality, affordable health care, uh, to be able to um, have mental health uh, support, um, addiction treatment uh, ready uh, for those who need it. And um, we know that 
and unfortunately, our, many of our children have lost access. Um, and, and I will say that there's some real distinction between our current governor and where I'd like to take us. Uh, his answer is to privatize just about everything, uh, whether that's privatizing sooner care, uh, which would put profit over care. Uh, it will uh, also take away the freedom of parents to make decisions about their own children's health care. And it puts the government in the middle of that. Um, this governor wants to privatize education as well uh, with his voucher scheme. And it would be a rule school killer. Uh, kill the school, you kill the community. But it would also be epic on steroids. And it would mean that everyone in an Oklahoma public school would receive less than ever before. This would be the high point year. Uh, if you introduce 30,000 more kids who today are paying their own tuition, um, and yet I think the answer is all kids deserve in Oklahoma to have a well-resourced, uh, uh, well-rounded education, one that's competitive with any other state. We are not doing what our kids need and deserve to have in education, and we need a governor who gets the connection with all of it. And finally, um, we've got to have the infrastructure for great jobs. And that does mean broadband access, internet connectivity. It means um, the kind of communities that can support great schools with um, safe uh, transport of children on buses um, and uh, the, the modern infrastructure plan for the future. It also means relationships have to be restored with our tribal sovereign nations. And we all recognize that in education, uh, the, the tribal uh, partnership is strong, uh, but it is also one that extends in health. Uh, and in safety and in infrastructure. So all of that together, let's just get back to common sense, working for a better Oklahoma and doing that with respect and uh, collaboration uh, with Oklahomans. Yeah. And, you know, we each year through legislation, we it ends up being more short term strategies. Uh, we kind of have piecemealed and, and they're great. Don't get me wrong. They're great. Uh, you know, last year we, we kind of we had a piece of legislation that started a teacher pipeline to help with um, tuition and then and, and loan yeah. forgiveness. Those are yeah. great. What do we need to do to create long term, sustainable, recurring, build a system that's going to be that that core structure that we need? Right. Well, it starts with respect for the profession. It starts with respect for those who are giving their lives in service to the education of the next generation. Um, and, and then also instilling um, those um, children uh, to have a desire to be a part of this. Um, teaching is the most noble profession. And all of those who are also supporting that learning in schools deserve respect and honor and the ability to continue that work. Um, this comes right along with the need to increase respect and provisions for our veterans, for uh, those in Oklahoma that need um, extra support during really difficult times. Um, and it also, is going to mean that we've got to work to see the big picture of how all of these things fit together. And it is about an environment that would welcome and you know people into the profession and allow them to stay in it in order to actually um, 
uh, have a full career. One of the things that I would like to see us do is to offer the Oklahoma's promise to all teachers uh, as a retention for um, our teachers uh, during a time of great shortage in the profession in classrooms. And if there were no income caps there, and we knew just as you would if you were working at the university um, and you have a benefit for your own children to be able to go to school there tuition free, that needs to be something that is part of being an educator in Oklahoma. And I do believe, based on my teacher uh, advisory councils and the information that they've shared with me, that this would be a way, a great motivator in keeping people here in Oklahoma teaching in an Oklahoma public school. What is the one thing that in your eight years as state superintendent, is there something that you're most proud of? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think it actually, it's it's probably not, um, I don't know. If, if it would be top of mind for a lot of people. But I like leading for the long run when we think about where we want to be in the future and doing some of that tilling of the soil uh, and recognizing that we are not maybe going to see the fruit yet of that labor, but it is what is essential to actually build capacity overall for individuals, for communities and our state. And that is the work that was done two part the work that was done in academic standards by Oklahoma educators, people in higher ed, people in industry coming together and saying, all right, let's be competitive and let's be gutsy with how we do this. Um, and let's set the bar at, um, you know, a place where we would be nationally competitive if our kids were learning at that level. And we did that with our academic standards in math, reading, science, and then a whole host of others, even computer science, all the way pre-K articulated vertically up to um, the senior year in high school. And when we also, then the second part to that is that we had to redefine success or what we would call today proficiency so that it matches what industry, um, what commerce, what the workforce demands, what ACT, SAT at the, at the final you know, end of high school entry into uh, a career pathway in career tech or college would say is ready. Not just ready, but being successful, AB grades in the college. And so we re, re, really redefined what proficiency means to meet that national standard. And that was gutsy and that was tough. And that was a lot of Oklahoma educators that came together and said, we're not afraid to raise the bar, but we have to measure growth because we are nowhere near that today with most of our kids. And so I am proud that Oklahoma educators stood together for kids and their future and had the courage to do something some may not understand um, and, and may be confused about what progress looks like, but we are growing and we know where the target is for our kids to be able to be successful. And that's our kids and our grandkids and the future of this state. And that is probably what I am most proud of that we were able to accomplish. People have been watching what Oklahoma has done and uh, on the national level interview and ask, how did that happen? It happened because people came together, cared deeply about the people of Oklahoma and were willing to do the hard work. And I loved that. And I want to do that again. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. It was great to see everybody. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend as we head into the fall. It's finally yeah. feeling like fall weather. <laughs> it, it actually yes. is today. It's kind of like nice and cool and cloudy. Yes. And I just smell pumpkin spice lattes everywhere. Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, yes. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks. Cool. Thanks. Take care. Well, Catherine, we are joined this morning by my coworker and amazing partner, Tyler Outlaw. Morning, Ooh, Tyler. It's, it's, we're, we dumped Ivy mm-hmm. and we brought in Tyler. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those are those are big shoes to fill. So I'll, right. I'll try and I'll try and fill in uh, admirably. So this week really kicked off the education interim studies on the house side. Yeah, so um, this week uh, it began with uh, community schools interim study uh, by Representative Tammy West. Um, we heard from a lot of different um, partners uh, in this community schools model. And so essentially, for those of you who don't know what community schools are, they're full service um, wraparound services for students, not um not maybe like spending lots of money to make those things happen, but leveraging uh, leveraging partnerships that already could exist within the community. So if parents need help, access to healthcare, um, they leverage partnerships with local healthcare entities to try and provide what parents need. Um, if parents are worried about feeding their kids, are they worried about after school programs, uh, community schools, um, the the model seeks to uh, provide those things for uh, parents and students by leveraging what already exists within the community. Yeah, it was amazing to see. We, you know, we've known that uh, Union Public Schools have been has been doing this work around community schools for over fifteen years and has had great success with them. But I was surprised. I did not know Tahlequah Public Schools also has a a model that they have been doing and it's been so quiet that I think there's a lot that have been doing parts of community schools um, incorporating those pillars of community schools so it was exciting to hear all those the the great news I think that's that that speaks to we heard both from both Tahlequah and Union Public Schools we heard from the school districts themselves but then we also heard from parents uh, and, and specifically Union Public Schools. And honestly, Catherine, um, I think this speaks to the work that our teachers are already doing and our schools are already doing. Um, it can be, I mean, what teacher hasn't had snacks in their class for the kids who may not, not, might, might be hungry, might come to them hungry? And that's not snacks provided by the school, that's snacks that the kids, teachers provide because they care about their kids. We're already doing some of this work. It could also be um, a counselor who, instead of doing their test prep, they have to give, let's say, the PSAT or uh, some other standardized test. Instead of doing that during the school day, they're meeting with kids all day, and then they're staying until six or seven that night doing that work to get ready for um, the te- the upcoming test that they have to to administer. And I think leveraging all of the existing um, services that we have in our communities. Uh, and and putting them in contact with people who need it is something that that we already do and we, we do our best, but we all have full-time jobs teaching or being a counselor or being an administrator. And 
This community schools uh, program offers an opportunity to hire one person whose job it is to connect the resources that already exist to the people who need them, our students and our families. Yeah, and I think it highlights also that when you see one community school, you've seen one community school. And even within the even in within the union district, all the elementaries that they have that have community schools, they're all different. Yeah, and I think the first um, kind of to our research on community schools, the first thing you're going to do when you want to start a community school is it's not a top down mandate. We're not telling schools what they need to do to become this community school. We're going to the community, the parents and saying, what do you need help with? What do, we, what do we need to connect you with so that your student will be more successful academically, socially, in our schools? What do you need? So that first step of reaching out to parents and reaching out to the community and saying, what do you need? And then taking that information and connecting those parents with what they need within the community, I think is going to look different in, in Tahlequah. It's going to look different in Tulsa Union, it's going to look like you said, it's going to look different school to school in Tulsa Union. And if we start expanding this to um, more urban areas, it's going to look different depending on which neighborhood you're, you're in. One of the things that I appreciated was that there were several parents who spoke at the study and all of them talked about the school as a partner mm. and highlighted, you know, here, here were a few challenges within my family or my, that my student, my child was having. And their first thought was that the school is a partner to ensure that my kid is successful both at home and at school. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I was going to say, oh, it, it highlights, you know, having, working with kids, um, parent, there has to be that essence of trust that is, that you have with the family of that student so that they're vulnerable to to tell you what's happening, to ask for help. And we heard parent after parent that they were really, their kids were struggling with some mental health issues. And the first person they reached out to was their child's teacher in their school. So that, just what you said, Tyler, that partnership is huge. And I think that I kind of want Catherine's perspective on this. I. As a teacher for the last five or six years, I feel like I didn't have as much um, access to parents. Like I talked to some parents, but there are lots of kiddos whose parents I would never see on Pantage Conference Night or when I go to a football game or, you know, when we host a community event. And I really feel like this movement to get parents more involved, um, I think it could be really positive uh, just in terms of see what we're dealing with on a daily basis and see what a day on a daily basis and see the the struggles that we have and let's let's fix it together let's work on this and solve these problems because like like I've said earlier I have to teach you know five classes a day and I have two preps and I'm going to take care of the kids when they're in, when they're inside my classroom if they need something to eat I'm going to provide that one and that sort of thing but there are larger issues that I, I can't solve myself my school can't solve um, itself and having more partners, whether that's community uh, businesses or more parent involvement, I think those are great things. So, Ellen, you you went to one on uh, grow your own. What was that about? 
So that was done by Representative John Waldron. He really wanted to do two things. One, highlight the teacher shortage across the state, which we've talked about multiple times. But again, highlight that we are sitting setting a record-setting year for emergency certified teachers again this school year. But at the end of the day, this there are short-term and long-term problems with that. And, and in the short-term, we do have to hire more people to fill our schools. And so grow your own programs are not teacher prep pro programs. They're really an approach to the recruitment and supporting community-based teacher candidates. So, you know, there were kind of three main programs kind of highlighted. One looked at um, Tulsa Teacher Corps, which was like a two-year program. I kind of see it like kind of like Teach for America um, where, you know, there's a curriculum set and they bring the educators in and have set trainings with them before they start and meet with them throughout the year. And then you had um, Oklahoma City Public Schools, which kind of has a para program that leads people to become certified teachers through the program. And then there wasn't like a specific name for it, but the all of the colleges of ed, which I, I know you work closely with Catherine, really talked about their efforts of partnering more with high schools to talk about, you know, growing your own from within your school system and maybe even providing early opportunities to observe and get credit with the goal of funneling those students to a college prep program. Yeah, I know. I, I hope that they talked about um, Teach Oklahoma. That is through the higher ed, the regents of higher ed, where high schools can offer classes to students as an elective that want to pursue a degree in education. So it was kind of, they've morphed the, um, what used to be uh, Future Teachers of America, that and uh, Educators Rising, they've, they've now done that. And we've, we've done a lot of work around that and it's, it's great ways. And I, the other thing that I think was important to, understand is that the pool of candidates that we are getting through these pathways is way more diverse than our traditional pathways, you know, that you started college as an 18 year old. And that has a huge impact on students that may not see representation in their classroom that looks like them. And I, I just, I keep thinking about, you know, I love that we're trying to help people get into the classroom, but also, you know, a key component of Grow Your Owns was support throughout that time period and partnerships like cohorts and how important that can be to keep those individuals teaching throughout that, you know, keeping them there for the long term. Yep. I was, I was just say I love the idea of doing uh, some sort of program in a high school because I mean all of the people, all of my colleagues in schools, they can tell you a teacher that had a, uh, a tremendous effect on their life. And while you're going through that, while you're with that teacher, what better opportunity to kind of learn what this job entails, the the the, the amazing things that we do, and maybe some of the difficult things that we do, and and how to and have that like partnership with someone you really trust. I think could be uh, an incredible tool to try and help solve this problem. Yeah. And then Tyler, 
did a different interim study that was on school safety, which I know is definitely an issue that our teachers have been talking about this school year. Yeah, so um, there was an interim study on school security by Representative Jacob Rosecrans and Representative Daniel Fay, as well as Senator John Michael Montgomery. Um, and they kind of did a, they looked at what the what we're doing now to try and protect schools, both statewide, but then also uh, brought in some individual schools. Um, and then uh, they kind of just, what's what do you need? That was their question. What, what do we need to, to kind of not fix this problem because this is a problem that's always moving, but how can we help essentially? And so it started off with the uh, um, different state agencies talking about what we're doing. And most of it is, is training, training um, people. Um, they, they, they say human capital, which is a weird term for me, but <laughs> they, they're going into schools and they're training administrators on how to create these emergency plans that we hope never have to be used. But having these plans um, is, is is step one. And then they're also training teachers. And a big part of this is is prevention. And so um, training school staff, I shouldn't just say teachers, school staff uh, needing training to know what are we looking for? and And when we see something that is worrying, uh, we need to say something. And so the state is is largely doing that as well as some some hardening measures um, that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and then it was kind of a, what are we doing in urban schools? What are we doing in suburban schools and 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 rural schools? And I can tell you that Oklahoma City Public Schools was there, and they were talking about all of the different hardening techniques they're doing. Um, essentially making it more difficult for visitors to just walk into a school. They have like a, they call it a safety vegetable where you walk in and you talk to somebody before you walk in the next set of doors. Um, and that's making them safe. They have, they've, I don't know if all of their schools have metal detectors, but some of them do. And the person who's in charge of uh, security for Oklahoma City Public Schools was asked a difficult question about not making uh, schools into prisons. Yeah. And he was like, his, he was very honest, and he said, I don't want schools to be prison, but at the same time, I want them to be safe so my kids can come to school and focus on the things that they need to do that day academically or um, with their extracurricular activities and not have to worry about something terrible happening. And so I found that interesting that he doesn't want that, but at the same time, if it makes it safer and we're getting out of here um, and everyone's safely leaving, it might be a trade-off. Okay. And so Oklahoma City Public Schools they show this picture. They have like a like a NASA control room that's like cameras from all over the district. I think I heard the person, uh, one of the people that were there from Oklahoma City Public Schools, said they have 55,000 cameras uh, around the district set up. And that juxtaposed that with um, OK Public Schools was there. And um, they had just bought their 35th camera for their school. And that's a, it's a, it's a rural school. And so we're doing... Uh, a lot of the, the same things to try and harden school buildings to make them safer and less um, soft targets is a new phrase that I learned yesterday. Yeah, I heard um, that. Yeah. <laughs> but we're doing a lot of the same things, but we're doing it um, what works best for the local. Local control is deciding what do we need to do to make our schools safer. And then the last thing I want to touch on before I stop blabbering is community schools and the school security um, interim study that I went to, something that we heard from, I would say, almost every, if not every speaker at these two um, events was the need for 
access to mental health professionals. And I think prior to the pandemic, that need existed and it, and it existed probably at a higher level than we're able to um, fill right now. But post pandemic, it's at the top of mind for so many parents, for so many administrators, I know for teachers. And I think if I took anything from this week, um, it is we've got to do a better job of getting our kids, our teachers, our parents access to mental health. And public schools, we take everybody. And so what better opportunity to provide those mental health resources than in a place where most people go at some point? Yeah, I, Tyler, I, I agree with you. And, and I, I would probably say maybe in a different way, public schools, we don't take, it's not that we take everybody, we welcome everyone. Mm. We welcome with open doors, everyone in our schools. And I think we sometimes, when you hear the word mental health, it, it goes straight to uh, a person laying on a couch and a, an adult with a legal pad writing down stuff, right? It's therapy. But it's so much more than that. It is school-based social workers that help connect uh, partners with parents. It is um, even in the realm of physical activity, and that helps integrate with uh, students' social and emotional well-being. It is about implementing curriculum into your school on social emotional learning and using de-escalation uh, strategies to help de-escalate a situation. So it's so much bigger than just the the what we sometimes get tunneled and when we say mental health. It's it's a very broad aspect when it comes to our students. Yeah. And I was just going to say that um, they talked to a pediatrician yesterday in this um, in the study. And when, when I think of traditionally, when I think of mental health in the schools, I think of school counselors. My wife's a school counselor. Uh, she loves her job. She does a great job. That that position is so important to uh, a school running well and students feeling both welcomed, but also listened to uh, when they're having issues. And, and she mentioned something that the, the recommended scout school counselor to student is 250 to one. So you want one counselor for every 250 students. In Oklahoma, we're at one counselor to 398 students, according to her research. And that's actually better than the national average. So we, it's not as good as they want it to be, but it's, it's better than, than the rest of, of the nation. What we struggle with, and this blew my mind, they, they say that we should have one school psychologist to every 500 students. Yeah. In Oklahoma, we're at one to about 4,000. Yeah. So we have some work to do. And that school psychologist, their primary job isn't to provide or help with school security, but their presence helps with mm -hmm. keeping our schools safe and keeping our students safe. We, when I came from the food bank, one of the things we always talked about is like, you know, if a baby kept falling in the water and moving downstream, you would definitely have something to catch the baby so it didn't drown. But, you know, what's our strategy for making sure the baby doesn't get in the water, you know, and those upstream strategies are, you know, school safety Yes, when if an issue happens, we want someone there, we want a process to make it safer. But ultimately, we don't want that to be an issue. And so I'm always happy when 
we are looking more upstream to fixing our problem than downstream. Yeah. It's yeah, way easier to be proactive than reactive. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I was struck by, I know I mentioned this earlier, but we're not talking about like the head of the PTA was saying we need mental health um, uh, resources. Uh, parents were saying we need mental health resources. Uh, superintendents and principals who were there yesterday said we need mental health resources, but also the people who are 30 year cops who have dealt with difficult situations outside of schools. Like we're not talking about inside schools. Their job is tough. They're coming to schools to help harden schools and protect students. And they're also saying we need investment in mental health um, access. And so this is not this is not one person or five people saying it, everyone's saying the same thing. And I think it's something that we need to address um, in, the, in the very near future. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking us through this week. And um, we have another week of interim studies next week. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's take some time and catch up with Catherine. Uh, we have jumped feet first into October. Uh, September is gone. October is fast and furious. There is so, Ellen, there's so much going on in October. We have so many things for our members. And the, the, the Biden-Harris uh, debt, loan forgiveness plan. They've, they've done a lot of work around that to help um, with the pandemic. And like we did with companies and loan forgiveness and that kind of thing, they've done it also with student loan forgiveness. They've developed waivers that, um, that have, first of all, it stopped interest rates, paying interest. And then, but also helped get more people qualified, especially in the area of our public service loan forgiveness, mm -hmm. which educators qualify for. And, but that is going to uh, sunset October 31st. And we it's important for our members to know about that. And so we have uh, created a couple of online webinars for our members to go on with and listen and 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 be on with our NEA member benefits. The NEA member benefits has done such a great job of creating programs to help get people connected with student loan forgiveness plans. And it, it's it's a tricky business. Like if you don't dot your I or cross your T, you got kicked out. And so they have a program called Savvy and it will let you know if you qualify for a loan and which one, or loan forgiveness and which one that you uh, qualify for. And you can go to our website, okea.org slash great member benefits and get more information about that uh, to sign up for that. But our next one is going to be on October the 26th. And that is going to be uh, at five o'clock. And so th that has been going out into out through the edge. So please, uh, um, if you think that you need to qualify for that, please Get involved with that one. And then uh, whew, we're hitting the road again. Vice President uh, Carrie Elledge and I are going out and we're, we're going to the Northwest um, during the week of October 18th and to visit with locals in those areas and have president roundtable dinners to, um, like we did last year, to lean in and listen, to find out what's happening and what we need to do to make sure that uh, we're, we're meeting the needs 
of our members and our educators around the state. And, um, and then uh, we have, uh, we're, we're continuing with our phone banking, right, Ellen? Uh, yep. We, that's, that's been out in all of our, our emails that have gone out. And, and, we, and, you know, there is nothing better than healthy competition. We, we like doing that. And so we've created where uh, locals can sign up either on a Wednesday or a Thursday night. Our zones can sign up. And we're going to, we, we love, when we set up these healthy competitions, we like to give prizes. Oh, I love yeah. a good prize. Prizes. So we have like incentive prizes for like the most, the local with the most members on at a night or the most percentage of members on or a zone with the most percentage. And then we're even going to throw like then everybody that was on throw their names in a hat and like, they're going to be eligible to win a hundred dollars. And so we like, you get a hundred dollars, you get a hundred dollars. We're, we're giving it out. And because you're, their time is valuable. Our our members' time is valuable, but what's also really important is that that we're reaching out mm-hmm. on on that phone banking to just simply say we get out and vote. We've got to get out and vote. It's also a fun time. I mean, yeah. everybody yeah. will be on Zoom at the same time. Yeah. So you know, for me, it's a little bit more accountability on the positive side. The accountability yeah. because I know. You know, my board president, Tiffany Johnson, is going to be there. And by golly, I'm going to make sure she sees me and get to see some of my colleagues, you know. And so yeah. I think that's an important piece that we're trying to make it competitive and fun. Fun, Yeah. And, um, you know, we're going to we're having our second annual um, education support professional day. It is going to be on October the 29th on a Saturday. It's a drive in, drive out. That is a day that is designed specifically for our education support professionals. Um, whether you're a member or uh, not a member, we want you to come. We're going to come. We're going to feed you lunch. We're going to get you all kinds of information, what you need to know, your professional growth as an education support professional, and also our and um, our OAEA, our Oklahoma Aspiring Educators Association. This is our student membership. Um, within OEA, they're having their fall conference here in Oklahoma City as well. So we have got a ton of things happening in October, and we want to get people um, connected. And you know, uh, you know, ha- talking with Superintendent Hoffmeister today, we we know the importance of elections mm-hmm. and what we need to be doing. And we know the value that public education has in our communities and, you know, speaking, having people speak about that as a value. It's a value for my family and hearing her talk about it as a value for her. It was important. Yeah, that's so nice. Um, well, it is like 70 outside, um, Catherine. So <sighs> no matter what, if people are in a bad mood, go outside because it feels good. This, feels good. this whole week has been that way. It's like oh, man. It's- every evening is when we go and walk Murphy, it's like, this is the best evening ever. And, <laughs> you know, it only happens like one, like a, two weeks. I always tell my friends that I, colleagues I have around the country, I'm like, yeah, Oklahoma only has two weeks of fall and two weeks of spring. 
<laughs> so get out and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we want to thank um, Joy Hoffmeister and Tyler Outlaw for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Ellen Pogamiller with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of OEA. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Fried Okra on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at fridaokrapodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.